You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. This is Patrick Martin. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Welcome to a Beltway Briefing by Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies. I'm Ken Fisher. Joining me today are the New York City Public Strategies team, Stuart Shorenstein, Katie Schwab, Rose Christ, and Jamie Hansorge. There's been a lot happening on the New York political front, and we're going to talk about some of it today because what happens in New York does have national ramifications. We may not be the center of the universe, but we are still the financial capital of the United States and increasingly politically important. So we've had an important development on that front, which is that the Democratic primary for mayor has been won by Eric Adams. He holds a local position called borough president, former uh, member of the New York State Senate. But more importantly, prior to that, he was both a political activist on civil rights issues and the captain in the New York City Police Department. The last mayor of New York who had a uh, police connection like that was Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, who was the police commissioner, went on to become uh, president. Rudy Giuliani had a law enforcement background. I'm not sure how much good that's been doing him lately. In any event, we're, we're going to talk about Eric Adams and and, and what his um, likely election means. There is a, Democrat, a Democratic-Republican race for Mayor Curtis Sliwa. Many people know him from uh, the Guardian Angels. Uh, the guy with the red beret in the subways has won the Republican nomination for um, for mayor. The election is in November. But given the fact that Donald Trump won only 22.6% of the vote against Joe Biden in the city of New York, uh, many people believe that the Republican brand is currently damaged in New York City and that it would be um, uh, highly unlikely for uh, for Sleeward to uh, to win. But before we turn to the municipal scene and what that means for the country, let's talk a little bit about our governor. Just a few months ago, Andrew Cuomo was America's governor. He was a national figure leading um, the fight against the pandemic. um, And his uh, regular briefings on that were must television for many, many Americans. Today, his image is somewhat uh, different. And Stuart Shorenstein is going to tell us about that where it stands, and what it means. Well, thank you, Ken. And uh, this is going to be the major drama that's going to play out over the next few months in New York politics, but also with a national scope. Uh, The governor, uh, as you mentioned, uh, was front and center for quite a long time on the pandemic. And some of those things, uh, some of that front and center is now coming back to bite him. Uh, With the elections over in New York uh, City for mayor and with the the, uh, session ended in Albany, the legislative session, uh, all eyes are turning towards the attorney general of the state of New York, Tish James, who is uh, reportedly wrapping up our investigation of the governor, uh, which includes a number of fronts. Uh, The governor was charged with sexual harassment, uh, um, a hostile workplace. He has issues that uh, relate to the the, uh, 
book that he published and the use of uh, government employees in that uh, for that book, of which he uh, earned a book, a, a book about about the, how he handled the pandemic, right? Right. It's the book about the pandemic, and he received a five million dollar uh, advance on that book. And there's allegations regarding that. There's allegations regarding the reporting of uh, nursing home deaths uh, uh, during the pandemic owing to COVID. And so it's a myriad of issues. Whether they add up to impeachment uh, is another story. Uh, but uh, right now, uh, he is scheduled to be uh, interviewed by uh, the attorney general. And uh, that suggests that sometime by the end of the summer, the investigation may be wrapping up. Uh, uh, in the meantime, the governor uh, is not one who anyone should um, uh, should should shortchange in terms of of uh, his future. Uh, he is a fighter. He is strategic. He is smart, and uh, he is not intending to resign. Uh, I was at an event with him recently where he announced that he's running for a fourth term uh, as governor and uh, and most of his traditional supporters uh, seem to be uh, still behind him. There's been some defraying of that of that support with the uh, uh, transit workers union um, uh, saying that they are are not in this camp anymore. Uh, but that said, he still has a strong base of support and uh, has been trying to solidify that by being governor and by governing. Uh, uh, he has been doing the ribbon cuttings. He has been doing uh, appearances with other Democrats, such as um, mayor-elect, uh, not mayor-elect, but Democrat nominee, uh, uh, Eric Adams. Uh, he's been trying to uh, roll out program after program. Uh, sports betting is front and center. Uh, cannabis legislation uh, and regulations are front and center for him. All popular programs that he is championing, but mainly he's trying to show that the government, despite these issues that are surrounding him, the government continues to function. At, at an event, I, I said to him, uh, I have two four-letter four words for you, hope and hero. And uh, he was a hero during the, the most uh, uh, difficult times of the pandemic. He was a hero to the nation. And he, we're reading lately that President Trump was worried that he would supplant Biden and run against him for president. Uh, he, he gave everyone hope. And that was something that was essential to getting us through. So I think uh, uh, it is a, um, it's, it, it's far too early to write off his prospects. Politically, uh, the Republicans seem poised uh, to nominate uh, for governor Lee Zeldin, congressman from Suffolk, who is closely associated with Trump. Uh, that suggests two things. For the first time, with respect to Governor Cuomo, he will have a well-funded opponent. 
And uh, Zeldin is looking at raising $35 million for the campaign. Uh, he actually outraised Cuomo in the last six months, $4 million to $2.5 million. But Cuomo, unlike any other Democrat that might consider challenging him in a primary, Cuomo has $18 million in the bank. And uh, that gives him a lot of a lot of uh, uh, money, political money and capital to play with. Um, uh, it is hard to imagine a Republican prevailing, uh, especially one that is close to Trump in New York. But uh, it should be a, a very colorful campaign, if nothing else. So I don't write the governor off. We don't know the assembly will consider the findings of the attorney general and is doing its own investigation for impeachment. And that will probably uh, heat up once the attorney general releases its re uh, report. Thanks, Stuart. And folks should know that we moved the primary date in New York from September to June. So the primary elections for Andrew Cuomo on the Democratic line, if he runs and if he has an opponent, for uh, Lee Zedlin on the Republican line, and it looks like he'll have a couple of opponents, less than a year from now, um, we'll be uh, reporting to you on the results of, of those uh, nomination fights. Katie, uh, the Bill de Blasio and Andrew Cuomo had a notoriously bad relationship, openly critical of each other. Um, some people were surprised by that because de Blasio had actually worked for Cuomo when Cuomo was the secretary of, of HUD. But if you go back in history, whether it was Rockefeller and Lindsey, Carey and Beam, Cuomo with both Koch and Dinkins, Pataki and Giuliani, um, uh, every time you have a governor and a mayor from the same political party, uh, they seem to be at each other's uh, throats. Maybe a possible exception would be David Patterson and Mike Bloomberg, but that's only if you count Bloomberg as a Democrat uh, during uh, various parts of his metamorphosis. You have enough time to really get at each other's throats. So now we're at a, a critical time for New York. Um, we will have a new mayor come January. It looks like it's it's Eric Adams. At the moment, it looks like Andrew Cuomo will still be the governor, whether he's a candidate for re-election or not. What do we know about their relationship right now, and what can we expect from it over the next six months? Well, it's interesting because, you know, le as a legal matter, the city is really a creation of the state. And yet most elected officials and people who are active in city government aren't really aware of that. And so there's just an inherent conflict in the city wanting to really exercise more self-determination than oftentimes it finds that it has under the law. So um, what's interesting is you're right, the governor and Mayor de Blasio have had a relationship that ironically started out very strong. If you review press articles from 2014, 2015, you'll find um, comments from them and from their close advisors saying how marvelous it is that they'll be working together because they were so close when they worked together at HUD. But as we all know, that relationship has now degenerated into really a bitter and quarrelsome relationship. And I think the public has grown very, very tired of that, especially coming out of the pandemic when problem solving is really what 
people are looking for. I think what's also interesting is Eric Adams has never been shy about demonstrating his lack of patience with that kind of a relationship. Like last year when the governor and the mayor were were sort of quarreling over how to close the schools and who had the power to close the schools, uh, the borough president tweeted out, you know, cut the crap. I don't have time for academic conversations like that. And I think that many voters find that very refreshing. Um, what is um, what's been noted and what I think is a, a hopeful sign is that the um, that Eric Adams has as a former state legislator, a really, you know, um, embodied sense of how the political structure works. He's not going to come into office with a false set of expectations about what can be done and what can't be done. I think he knows also um, very well how the state legislature works when the city wants to make changes, whether it's to um, state law, things having to do with taxes, for example, where you need to go to the legislature, he will know how to go ahead and, and do that. And I think that will be helpful both in terms of the city coming out of the pandemic and in facilitating a more positive relationship with the governor. I mean, another thing I just want to point out is I actually think that the borough president and the governor have some things in common. They rely on many of the same voters, the sort of moderate black voters, on white ethnic voters. Um, their messages are somewhat similar in terms of how they approach economic development, how they approach public safety, how they approach kind of leadership in general. Um, they have both of them actually have occasionally run into circumstances where they're perhaps um, blurring some ethical lines. You know, the governor, as we've mentioned, is under investigation for some misconduct that he's been accused of, sexual misconduct, and this issue with writing the book using public resources inappropriately. You can look back to other scandals, going back to Joe Prococo and, and Todd Howe, and he's he's managed to survive them, and he continues, you know, in his position. He's a very resilient politician. Um, Eric similarly has had some missteps in his past, um, whether it's having to do with making the selections at Aqueduct or um, at the racetrack, which was an issue when he was a legislator, or whether there may have been possible conflicts of interest in soliciting funds for the one Brooklyn fund that he created while he was the borough president. So both of them, I think, will be um, wary of each other in terms of having these kind of shared interests and shared strategies for advancing their political careers. Katie, the governor is very important to Eric Adams from a uh, governmental point of view, but on the political side, uh, the core of Andrew Cuomo's support has been in the African-American community. Can he afford to pick a fight with Eric Adams at a time when the two most likely challengers are both African-American, Tish James and Jermani Williams, a, a New York City official? Right. My opinion is that he would be unwise to do that. And in fact, one thing, the governor and um, and Eric Adams appeared together in a press conference this week. It received quite a lot of notice. And um, what I noticed is that they have a shared enemy in the so-called progressives, right? And so when asked about this, both of them, you can tell they they kind of get their back up a little bit. Governor Cuomo said, you know, pro progressives are people who make progress for people. He's quite dismissive of the progressive um, elected officials and activists who are inclined to push him aside, who've called for his resignation and so on. Um, Eric Adams similarly says, I'm not giving up my progressive mantle. I have... I have done a lot. So I think that they're 
both claiming that together and looking to work together and, and maintain their position and maintain um, their ability to accomplish the things they've said they would do. Rose, in, in addition to a focus on blue collar working class uh, people, um, Adams and Joe Biden um, have in common uh, a commitment to fighting crime, that, that crime is both a uh, economic development element that you can't have prosperity without public safety. And it's also a question of fundamental human rights that people are entitled to policing that's done in an effective and, and dignified way. Biden took a lot of heat over his support for the crime bill in the 1990s when he was a candidate for president. Eric Adams took heat for being a police officer, even though he was one of the most uh, outspoken people on uh, police brutality issues, even while he was on the force. It looks like there's the beginning of the kind of bromance between Adams and Biden that, that Biden and Cuomo have enjoyed for so many years. Uh, do you think that this is just you know, a little bit of posturing as they both establish their their images, or do you think that there's an opportunity there uh, for real collaboration between the mayor of the city of New York and the president? Yeah, well, I mean, we've seen our Democratic nominee already make a big splash on the national stage, right? It's joining a bunch of prominent mayors at the White House for a meeting with Biden, specifically around the issue of gun violence. And I think that to answer your question there, it's a little bit of both, right? I think there's really is a substantive opportunity for them to collaborate together to stop the iron pipeline of guns, you know, trafficking across state lines and coming to places like New York um, where there are much stricter gun purchasing laws. Um, and then I think the other piece of it is that it really does accomplish like two big wins for Adams as he's getting ready to go into the November election. I mean, it provided a platform for Adams to continue to show his like substantive bona fides about addressing crime in New York City, which is especially important because we've seen quite a bit of gun violence in the city recently. That's all been covered sort of like with bated breath by the New York Post, which notably endorsed Adams. Um, and then also given the fact that his upcoming race is against Curtis Sliwa, who, as you mentioned, is the founder of Guardian Angels, which is this org sort of dedicated to maintaining public safety through volunteer patrols on the subways and the streets. And so, you know, Adam uh, needs to continue to, to demonstrate that he is not just sort of talking the talk, but walking the walk and has planned to be able to increase safety on the streets and make New Yorkers feel like this is a place they can be out at night. They can go to the restaurants. They can go out to the museums. They're not going right, to face gun violence as much, and they have a plan. And then the second reason it's a big win for Adams right, is it puts him on this national stage with Biden. And I think it actually, as, as you mentioned, is kind of like a symbiotic benefit. You know, Adams gets the, the upshot of being associated with Biden, who's very popular in New York. Biden gets the upshot of being associated with Adams, who is coming off of this win. Um, and, you know, they have drawn a lot of similarities to each other, similar to what Katie was talking about, how there's some similarities between Cuomo and Adams. Um, Adams has really sought to align himself with Biden, calling himself the Biden of Brooklyn. Right. And that's not totally without merit. Uh, they do sort of have the same approach to engaging voters person to person. They both are highly critical of the Twitterati, right, who kind of like in the internet world try and establish the narrative and maintain the narrative, but it's not necessarily representative of, of the folks who show up to the polls or 
or maybe even more importantly, the folks who rely on government services the most, right? Um, and so he's gone out of his way to make these like favorable comparisons to Biden. And I think that that's going to ultimately ignore to his benefit as he goes into November. Um, and it's nice. I'll just say, like, as an aside, it's really nice and it's smart for Adams to establish this good relationship with Biden. That's politically helpful for his immediate future, but it's also really important for the city of New York if Adams wins. I mean, our city budget was recently adopted and it relies on $22 billion in federal aid to recover from COVID. Maintaining strong relationships with Biden, as also with people like Chuck Schumer, it's going to be critical for the city of New York to continue to recover out of this pandemic. Um, so I think it's personally, you know, maybe opportunistic and beneficial, but it's also substantively super important for our city's future that he continues to foster that relationship. So I think smart move all around. Mm -hmm. Jamie, Joe Biden's ability to advance his agenda, certainly his ability to be of assistance to the city of New York, but his national agenda depends in part on the ability of the Democrats to maintain their majorities in both uh, the House and the, the Senate. In the House, it's razor thin. It's subject to reapportionment, um, efforts by Republican state legislatures uh, around the country to hold on to their power, I guess in some cases the Democrats as, as well. But that, that ability, that Democratic majority to some extent, is the responsibility of Hakeem Jeffries, Congress member from Brooklyn, um, fourth-ranking Democrat in the House of Representatives as the chair of the Democratic uh, Caucus. Uh, but right in his backyard is AOC, the embodiment of the progressive movement, who may not have the troops behind her um, in New York City political circles, but certainly has one of the broadest social media followings in the country and what seems to be an outsized influence and, and voice when it comes to democratic politics. You could argue that, that she and the movement that she represents has, has moved candidates to the left, even if they didn't embrace the progressive or, or socialist labels. So does does she pose a threat to the Democratic Party's ability to hold on to their majority? And if if you were advising Hakeem Jeffries, how would you tackle this? That's a great question, Ken. And and as you're hinting at, you know, we we've, we've seen in New York the continued kind of battle for the soul of the Democratic Party that we're seeing play out, you know, across the country. You know, whereas Hakeem Jeffries has kind of become the voice of the, you know, moderate progressives, you know, as Rose was saying, the term and Katie, the term progressive has kind of been co-opted and everyone says they're progressive, but the moderate progressives versus the kind of ultra progressive to DSA candidates. And we, we saw that play out here in New York City. And, um, you know, what happens in these council races and mayoral races have implications for the congressional races. And, you know, the lines are being redrawn for next year. It looks like um, you know, one longstanding member of Congress, Carolyn Maloney, will see another uh, insurgent uh, challenge next year. And, and likely after those lines are released, we'll see other uh, primary challenges to incumbents. And, you know, you're right, Hakeem Jeffries, who, you know, would love to be focused on building the Democratic majority uh, in red to blue seats, uh, now has to focus on, on, you know, saving members of his caucus who are facing these challenges from the left. And, 
I believe they've created a a pack for the sole purpose. You know, we're used to seeing the DCCC frontline pack to support uh, Democrats in who c- could lose to Republicans. Now you're seeing resources being pushed into supporting incumbents like Carolyn Maloney, who's now a, a chair of a very important committee, um, who will have the fight of her uh, of her career again next year, and she might not be the only one. Um, but yeah, I'd love to talk about, you know, kind of how that played out in local races as well, you know, with, with Fort Greene, Brooklyn, uh, being, you know, kind of a rapidly gentrifying, uh, neighborhood where we saw Hakeem Jeffries backed candidate up against a AOC and DSA endorsed candidate, um, and for the city council, right? For city council. Correct. Um, and, uh, the Jeffries backed candidate, um, who, you know, was a great candidate in her own right, uh, was able to, uh, win though by a, a relatively small margin. And uh, Across the city, we saw pitched battles between kind of moderates and progressives and ultra progressives. Um, but on the whole, you know, while we were, you know, many were worried or thinking that there might be a kind of DSA tide sweeping the city, uh, it turns out more of the kind of more moderate traditional liberal candidates seem to carry the day, except for in limited uh, pockets across the city. Uh, you know, DSA endorsed the Democratic Socialists of America, endorsed six candidates for city council out of 51 races. So they've tried to really focus on winning uh, a specific set and not spread too thin, but they only won two of those races, um, which might indicate that while DSA has gained footholds in these two races where someone named Tiffany Caban will become the kind of mantle bearer of DSA on the city council, um, that their strength is really kind of picking off incumbents and low turnout off year races, and they might not have as much ability to impact citywide and kind of more high turnout cycles where, you know, we saw more moderate candidates uh, leading the mayor's race from Eric Adams to Catherine Garcia to Andrew Yang, as opposed to Stringer, Wiley and Morales, who never really were able to um, unite the ultra progressive mantle um, to carry in the citywide races. The other side of the Capitol is equally important for uh, Joe Biden to be able to carry out his agenda. And the leader of the Democrats in the United States Senate right now is Chuck Schumer from New York. Uh, in fact, more specifically, Chuck Schumer from Brooklyn, as is Eric Adams is from Brooklyn, Germani Williams, a possible Cuomo challenger from Brooklyn, the most likely new controller of the city of New York, uh, Brad Lander from Brooklyn, uh, Tish James uh, from Brooklyn, and as somebody born and raised and who still lives in Brooklyn, um, take that, the rest of New York. But look, on the Washington level, Chuck Schumer has an incredibly difficult task. His majority in the Senate is razor thin. And with the Senate tradition of deferring uh, legislation, unless it has at least 60 votes, not even just a simple majority, his ability to get things done requires unanimous uh, assistance from all of the the Democrats. Um, And it also requires either compromise with Republicans on big picture issues where they need uh, the supermajority or finding ways to use uh, the techniques of Washington budget reconciliation and other sort of parliamentary uh, maneuvers that allows him to pass legislation without um, 60 votes. I was in an event with Chuck Schumer uh, not too long ago where he talked about the responsibility that he felt, um, given the fact that he was taking office as the majority leader 
um, literally in the midst of an insurrectionist crowd that was trying to uh, disrupt the election by the College of Electors of the President of the United States or delegitimize um, uh, a Biden win, that he was feeling the responsibility for the existential threat of climate change. Um, and he said that, you know, he had told his leadership team that he had certain principles that he wanted to, to follow. One was that all the Democrats had to be united. And that's why, you know, his leadership team um, includes Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, and it also includes Joe Munchen and Senator Siena from, uh, from Arizona, um, who, you know, have ideologically different positions. They also have politically different positions. And, you know, he said to them, put yourself in the other person's shoes, put yourself in the other person's um, state and, you know, think about how the positions that you're asking them to take are going to play there because, you know, first be a politician, then be a statesman. If you don't have the votes, it doesn't matter how good your programs or ideology are. And lastly, to go big, have big ideas. And, and, and I think that that's one of the things he's concentrating on right now uh, in terms of what is possible for uh, the Senate to be able to accomplish. They are close to, I think, negotiating a multi-trillion dollar infrastructure public works program, um, arguing still about the overall scope of it, arguing about whether it is paid for or needs to be paid for, and um, arguing about whether in, um, investments in human infrastructure and things that we may not think traditionally of as infrastructure are within the ambit of what needs to be done. Schumer has threatened to use budget reconciliation and pass a Democrat-only bill. Um, he'd like it to be a bipartisan bill. There are Republican members of the Senate that are working closely with him. Uh, and we'll know within the next few weeks, I think, whether that effort is going to be successful or not, or whether Mitch McConnell is going to throw um, a stick into the wheels of government and, and, and derail it. Uh, interestingly enough, with the with the uh, stimulus bill, um, not a lot of Republican support, but a lot of Republicans claiming credit. And when it comes to infrastructure, shovels in the ground in local states, um, senators, particularly those running for election next year from both political parties, are going to want to be going to uh, groundbreakings and ribbon cuttings. For New York City, um, Schumer has made no bones for an extended period of time that the Gateway Project, creating new uh, connections for the railroads between New York and New Jersey, given the fact that the tunnels under the Hudson River are at risk, is a very high priority. And we'll, we'll see how he's able to steer that process. Um, also, another thing on the New York level that Schumer behind the scenes, I'm sure, has a lot to say about is the implementation of congestion pricing, charging cars to go into Manhattan um, with the revenue from that going to support the New York City subway system. Our subways uh, really took it uh, uh, on the chin with the drop off of ridership because of the pandemic and the drop in, in tax revenues for certain streams that are dedicated to the MTA. Um, and so that's another area where the federal government, Biden, together with Schumer, together with 
Cuomo, together with Adams, uh, all of them have to work together to to uh, make these critical pieces of infrastructure safe and accessible and part of the New York City recovery. So let's talk about the New York City recovery for a minute. Um, we are at the tail end of what we hope is the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic. It hit New York hardest in terms of the number of uh, deaths. Um, our recovery in some ways led the nation. Um, and hopefully the public health crisis is substantially under control. But the human crisis associated with the loss of half a million jobs, the impact that it's had on our business community, the number of people who are still unemployed, the number of institutions that are still reeling from the after effects of this is, is significant. But there's you know, one indication that I can, I can share with you where things may be turning around. At the worst of the pandemic, they clocked about 50,000 people a day in Times Square. They actually had people with, with clickers to go out and count as part of the business improvement district activities in the area. 50,000 people a day. That was in comparison to what had been 300,000 people a day at the crossroads of, um, uh, of America not just in terms of tourists, but workers, workers in the office buildings, workers in the restaurants, people associated with Broadway, 300,000 people a day went down to 50,000 people a day. Well, here we are in the summer of 2021, and the numbers have gone back up to 200,000 people a day. And that's just with foreign tourism starting to pick up. A lot of it is um, people from the United States coming to take advantage of what New York has to offer. And it's also people returning from the city who were uh, away for a while and people who are coming to New York for the first time to, to start their careers and families because, oddly enough, the New York City affordability crisis was somewhat eased by the fact that the demand went down. So we are where we are, and we are not where we need to be. So let's talk a little bit about where are we and where where do we need to be? Katie, why don't we start with you? Well, I'm seeing, because I've been coming into the office here at the World Trade Center most days of the week, and I'm every week seeing an increase in the number of tourists, particularly. I don't see a lot more office workers, but... The line this morning when I arrived at the World Trade Center um, Muse Memorial Museum was outside and almost to the end of the building. Um, I saw a couple of groups of people walking around with matching t-shirts suggesting they're not native New Yorkers just out for a stroll. And I think that's a really, really positive sign. It's very, very encouraging. Um, I know that the city has been facilitating um, restaurant week, sort of theme tourism inducement type weeks to just try to bring people back out of their homes. There is a there is some concern about the Delta variant and is COVID really, really behind us? But um, because it's summer and because there are opportunities to do things outside, I feel optimistic that the city's coming back around. What about you, Jamie? Are you optimistic? I am. I mean, you know, we'll see what happens with this Delta variant, which is increasingly concerning, I think, to everyone. But you know, assuming, you know, if that does, if that 
does not continue to increase, I think we are seeing New York open for business. I'm seeing, we're seeing new stores opening up. We're seeing tourism starting to come back. And, uh, you know, I think New York will be back better than ever. The question is how long it will take. Rose, you watch the New York City budget like a hawk, although when it comes to the budget, you're a dove. They can't spend enough. Um, right, right now, we, we've seen a, a, a couple of billion dollar drop in property tax revenue, but that seems to have been offset by an increase in the uh, receipts from the personal income tax a lot of it driven by Wall Street. Wall Street bonuses and profits uh, seem to be hitting record or near record numbers and is driving uh, some activity in the city, even if those office buildings are, aren't full. So is the, city, is the city broke? Is the city flush? Is this the 1970s or is this the 2000s? Yeah, I know. It's a, I mean, I think that we're kind of like falsely flush. Right now, it feels good, right? This was an incredibly good budget. As I said, from my perspective, we just spend it wisely, but um, should be spending the money to support the institutions and services that really keep the city running and make New York what it is. Um, and I would include, you know, selfishly, my cultural organizations in that mix. So the city, I think, feels flush. But my real concern is we saw a lot of the federal aid that came through put in to fill holes for reoccurring costs and also to defer cost savings that had been previously baked into the budget, especially around health care costs for city employees. So um, I think that we'll continue to see the city recover. I'm hoping we see a lot more international tourists come and stay at our hotels and pay the hotel tax. Right. I am hopeful that the um, personal income tax continues to be strong. I think that it likely will be. Um, and then I think just as, as we've all been talking about, as people come back to the city, um, both as tourists, but also the office workers, we'll begin to see more money changing hands within the five boroughs at our local shops, restaurants, et cetera. And all of that has like an in incremental effect in helping to bring the city's financial picture back onto stable ground and hopefully become less reliant on federal bailout funds, which, you know, as much as we talked about before, Adams and Biden becoming new bosom buddies or whatever it is, right? Like we can't rely on that off forever. And so um, we really need to see the city's economy rebound on its own. And I'm optimistic that it will. I'm optimistic that people are coming back. I was in the city, you know, for in Manhattan for meetings the other day. And I was, you know, pleased, displeased, but, you know, the usual New Yorker disgruntled to be stuck behind a whole horde of Southern tourists making their way slowly through the sidewalk. And I caught myself feeling grumpy about it for just one minute. And then I remembered, no, 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 this is exactly what we need to see. I was really happy uh, at the end of the day to see it happening. And I think we'll see more and more of that, especially in the fall. Well, I think that's right. There's a there's a window right now. A lot of the office workers and, and others in New York uh, plan to come back uh, right after Labor Day when school starts. I think that's going to be a big difference. And many of them will be will be going back into their offices, if not five days a week. Katie, I was just going to add just to sort of bring us back to our political conversation that to me, it's very interesting that Eric Adams includes a rather prominent plank in his platform about having a peg, right, about a program to eliminate the gap. So he has acknowledged right up front that city spending needs to be reined in. Um, and to Rose's point that, you know, we're using the federal money in ways that are not necessarily um, 
perhaps the wisest because it's not a sustainable revenue stream. It's a short-term infusion, which has been definitely the sugar high that the city needed after being, you know, really thrown back on its heels for so long. But um, I think that it'll be interesting to see if our political leadership can come together and acknowledge that it's been great to get everyone back in town. It's great to get everyone back on their feet and enthusiastic about the city, not feeling defeated any longer, but now we need a constructive plan to move forward. So I think our our lesson from today is don't write off Andrew Cuomo, uh, regardless of how his political fortunes look right now. Don't write off Eric Adams as a a single issue uh, candidate. He is committed to upward mobility as opposed to the redistribution of wealth being advocated by the progressive side of the uh, Democratic uh, Party. Uh, Don't write off uh, the importance of New York City, not just as an economic and creative engine, but in terms of our political influence um, in Washington and across the the country. Um, And most importantly, don't write off the city of New York. There was a lot of of that uh, being uh, promoted in the media as clickbait. Uh, in the earlier days of the pandemic, asking whether the idea of cities, the idea of New York was over. Um, Come see for yourself. Uh, Between now and September, uh, the streets are a little less crowded and the hotel rates are a little lower. If you are a New Yorker, uh, we look forward to seeing you around the neighborhoods. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Ken Fisher. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.